Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly, as always. We've got some uh, great stuff coming at you this week. Two great guests. First, Bob Smitana, national writer for Religion News Service. He's going to talk to us about Dave Ramsey, a uh, popular financial advisor for all kinds of reasons. And after that, we have uh, Sonia Dreisler, who's going to talk to us about equality, racial equality, gender equality, and some ESG stuff. But uh, first of all, Bob, uh, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Bruce, I think you have the first question for, for Bob. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Hey, Bob, good to talk to you again. Uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, so just a bit of background. We write about, Investment News covers Dave Ramsey, who's a wildly, widely popular figure in kind of the, the self-help financial marketplace. Has a big radio show, big presence on YouTube, lots of books and the th- and all that. But he's he's very uh, prominent in the world of financial advisors and broader financial services. So most recently, Investment News wrote about difficulties or 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 perceived difficulties with a sponsor of Dave Ramsey called Timeshare Exit. And they've run into some problems with regulators and the like. And so Dave Ramsey cut its connection to this uh, timeshare exit company, which was promoting the fact that it was trying to get you out of timeshares. So that kind of spurred further research. And then I saw a big article that Bob had done earlier in the year about kind of a variety of kind of questions hanging over the Ramsey group. In general. So we want to get into that first. But Bob, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you cover, what is the religion news service, and then why the recent focus on Dave Ramsey? Sure. So uh, religion news service, or RNS, as we like to call ourselves by our initials, we're a national secular news uh, nonprofit that covers religion news. So we're, we're non-sectarian. We, we started, we're about 80 years old. So we cover uh, all, you know, every kind of religion, you know, Christians, Muslims, Jews, and we don't take sides in that. We're, we're just interested in kind of honest, in-depth coverage of religion. And we've been doing that for a long time. I've been covering religion my whole career. I've um, been a journalist for about, since the 1999, and the, the entire time I've covered religion. Oh, okay. So Dave Ramsey. So you don't work for Dave Ramsey or, or work no. for a church or anything like that. No, no, we don't work church. So we're kind, of, we're kind of Switzerland. We're we're a lot like the Associated Press. In fact, they're one of our partners, and so we write very kind of balanced, non-sectarian stories. I mean, we were started in the '30s because back in the '30s, the religion news was mostly anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish, or it was right. very puff piece, and so there was an idea that we should have better religion journalism that's fair to everyone. So that's kind of our hallmark. And your pieces get picked up like a wire service, right? Yeah, like a wire service. So we publish on our own site at religionnews.com. But yes, they get picked up by the Washington Post, Houston Chronicle, a number of other places that are our partners. Right. And you're based where specifically? Well, I was based until for the last 14 years, I was in Nashville. And just this past uh, month, we moved uh, up to the Chicago area. Oh, okay. Great. So 
how is uh, Dave Ramsey part of your beat, I guess, as, as a reporter here? So, so Ramsey is enormously – so there's a lot of interest in what religion has to say about finances. Right. And so Ramsey is enormous presence there. I think of all – he's very interdenominational. So uh, churches of all kinds of backgrounds use his materials. He has a, a nine-week course called Financial Peace University, which is taught in churches and schools all over the country. But he identifies as a born again Christian. Yeah, he right? identifies as a born again Christian. Yes. Okay. So that's so that's part of his story. He has a kind of a, a whole story of going bankrupt and then kind of learning God's. Uh, I don't know how he markets himself outside of the Christian world, but in the religious world, he markets himself as having discovered sort of God's principles for handling handling money. So there's kind of a, uh, you know, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Kind of testimony to his work, and he doesn't really. I think he does a really effective job of giving people some tools and then kind of a story that, oh, you can take charge of your finances and here's some principles that you can use to change your life. And there's a lot of, there are a number of faith-based groups that do this. His is probably the most effective. I mean, he um, really, his message, the part of the bedrock of his message is this debt-free living. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. And it. then yeah. get invested in the stock market and stay invested in the stock yes. market. Yes. Yeah. So and I don't think any financial advisor would necessarily argue with those two. You know, our beat is financial advisors. Your beat yeah. is religion and institutions, you know, like Dave Ramsey. But it's very commonsensical type of advice here, you know. Yeah, I think one of, one of the things that works for him is this kind of religious message that God, if you do this, you do it God's way. And it's kind of a, I, I sometimes call it an austerity gospel. If you instead of the prosperity gospel you give to the preacher and you and God blesses you, it's that if you do these smart things that God wants you to do, then God will help your life get better. Right. So what recently has been the cloud kind of hanging over the Ramsey organization? So I, I was in that Nashville, you've been reporting about. I've been reporting. So I've been when in Nashville he's an enormous presence, and there have been concerns for. There are, have been concerns for a year about the kind of management practices there. So, one, you know, Dave's very religious, but it's a secular company and a private company. So there have been questions of how much of his religious beliefs are enforced upon employees. There were questions for a long time whether they only hire Christians. There are questions of what kind of conduct you're allowed to do. And then there's the questions of Dave is almost seen as a religious leader, and so to question him is seen as almost questioning uh, God or your pastor. So it kind of came to But he's head. not a church. The Dave Ramsey no, organization not is but, not a church. It's a business. It's a business, yes. But it operates a lot like a church. There's a worship service every week. There is a very high focus. They have these values up on the wall, and some of them we work as unto the Lord is one of them. So there's this very religious ethos in the place, and it functions in some ways like a church, though it's organized as a business. And what is what what have been the the, the problems or the hurdles so that the, the organization a has? A lot of it has to do with uh, the biggest, most recent thing is um, there's a lawsuit involving an employee named Caitlin O'Connor. Caitlin went to her boss, she said she was I'm pregnant, but I'm not married. And she ended up being fired. Now she's suing for religious discrimination, saying that, or and for, actually she's firing for being She's suing because she says she was fired for being pregnant and that her claim is that the, uh, the Ramsey Solutions or the, what they call the Lampo Group is their kind of official name, 
is requiring employees to follow the founders' religious principles. And they, the counterclaim by Ramsey has been, well, we have these rules and we fire anybody, not just pregnant people, but men and women, anyone who's, and we fired people for having sex, in this case, sex outside of marriage. There's been, there was concerns before that this policy was not followed for everyone. So they had a, a well-known author and radio host named Chris Hogan, who uh, had a very messy divorce. And uh, so they had fired Caitlin, and they fired other folks. For the organization. He worked for the organization. It was kind of seen as an heir to, to Ramsey. And he was, there were concerns about him in his divorce, about him breaking the policy. He was not fired. In fact, the company backed him and they labeled people who were at raising questions as sort of rats leaving the ship. So that's, that's one angle. There's been, uh, COVID was very challenging for them. He did not believe in working from home and people wanted to work from home. And so folks who you know, had questions about that, several of them have been fired. I think the third thing is the company has this no gossip policy, which is strictly enforced on both employees and employees' spouses. And so that's, you know, and, and gossip is, you know, seen as anything negative you say about the company. And so there have been people fired uh, because their spouse said something on social media, not necessarily negative, but saying, hey, I don't know why my employer is asking us, them, my husband to go back during COVID. We have medical challenges. Or their people have been fired because their spouse said something that was overheard in a, like a one, in one case, a dinner. A spouse was at a dinner, said something that a former employee heard and interpreted as being negative to Dave Ramsey and reported to the company, and that person was fired. Yeah, it's, it sounds very complicated and kind of messy. Yes. But what about the reach of Dave Ramsey? What If I'm a consumer, right, and I like listening to Dave's radio show, and I go to the website, what kind of financial services, products, and solutions does he promote? And how? And, and to my knowledge, at least with financial advisors, those guys pay uh, a financial advisor to be kind of deemed a Dave Ramsey advisor. You pay a, a marketing or advertising fee for that. So yeah, what kind of financial solutions is he promoting? And then Jeff will kick it over to you after Bob answers that. Yeah. So they have a, they have a whole group of things. They have, um, you know, they have his books and his principles. They have a, and now they call it Ramsey Plus, this whole suite of tools. They have a, a, a budgeting app. I think it's called Smart Dollar that you get that will track all your expenses. They, they do have this program called, I think it's called like Endorse Local Providers, ELP. Right. Those are folks who he puts a stamp of approval on, I think there's insurance and realtors and until recently this timeshare exit and other other kind of things. But real realtors and insurance. And financial advisors, but realtors. And financial advisors, right? yeah. 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 Financial advisors, realtors, insurance. Those are folks who have there's some kind of financial arrangement. I don't know all the details, but there's you know, they they get that and that generates leads for them. Right. Right. And the leads are very powerful. I mean, if you because I've done this in my reporting. When you go to the website and you you look up a smart, they're called Smart Pro, Smart Vester Pro Financial Advisors, and you type in your name, you know, and your area into the system, and you put your phone number and your email in there. I mean, a financial advisor, I've done it a couple of different times over the years, and you get phone calls from advisors like within five minutes. You know, I think your name goes out to maybe five or six different financial advisors. 
and then they they you know and they'll pay i'm i did this about a year ago or two years ago and i'm still getting emails from financial advisors you know so it's a it's it's a very powerful lead generation system um and i've been talking to advisors about these lawsuits and the like that uh, you described, Bob, and we'll get into their reaction to that in a minute. But I just wanted to throw it over to Jeff to see, Jeff, if you had any questions for, for, yeah. for Bob. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bob, The uh, I, uh, I I have this piece, this story you wrote in January about Ramsey. I don't know if you write, if you report on him regularly. I know you said you were based in Nashville and that's where the Ramsey enterprise is correct mm-hmm. franklin which is right next to yes. uh nashville obviously yeah, this is a really do you are all your stories this in-depth and comprehensive or <laughs> because uh if they are i don't want to work there at uh religion I, news service i think <laughs> jeff had to take a couple of aspirin after reading that story we have a headache we write kind of regular. I write, I write breaking news. I write you know regular features. I have had a like a kind of a specialty in writing kind of long form investigative pieces. I used to okay. work at the Tennessean newspaper in Nashville and started doing those kind of things there. Okay. Anyway, it, a lot here. Um, how how big is this this empire? How many advisors do they have, or, or how are you connected if you're an advisor? That you know that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know that answer. I know they. It's they hundreds, all, if not thousands, yeah, just, just based yes. on my reporting. You know, yeah. okay. I know they have nine hundred employees, and they're growing it. Uh, they've just built a they built a, a new building, and it was uh, they they are hardly finished with the new building. They built an addition to it. I think he's got some tax, so they're planning to expand if uh, the number of employees. And the biggest driver of the growth is the ELP. Okay. Yeah, and one thing that kind of struck me in, in on this in your piece was uh, says here in while he when he was in his mid twenties, Ramsey and his wife owed millions after a real estate business failed. I'm not sure how old he is now, but owing millions while you're in your mid twenties is a is a pretty big mountain to climb. Yeah, it's kind of you know we did when I was at Tennessee and actually we looked into because his story is that he got went bankrupt, uh, was over leveraged in real estate. Uh-huh. And that did check out. We yeah, would that have been in the 90s, Bob, or the 80s, or when? Probably the 80s, early 90s. So there was a real estate boom, and then he, you know, his notes got called. Uh-huh. That was the savings and loan crisis, yeah. right, from the late 80s and the and the junk bond time, the, right? The, the other thing about that that kind of seems like a theme in this, this report is the kind of the bylaws or the guidelines of working – for Ramsey, when even your spouse or your family is kind of considered under the aegis of rules that they have to follow, which seems a little heavy handed to me, but this is not really a surprise to anyone, right? People that get hired there know all this stuff going in, correct? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, they do know that. I think there are questions of, it's a kind of a big family environment too, I think uh-huh. there are folks who also, I think people go there and they think the number of folks who I talked to have left, they go there, they think this is the greatest thing ever. And they really, yeah. they really believe in the mission and people stay there because they believe in the mission. I think what they end up being, having questions about is, and COVID I think really brought this up. So, you know, you know, COVID, why is working in this office part of our mission of getting people out of debt? If I can do it do as well at home, why do I need to be here? And why asking right. a question about COVID is a problem? 
and and uh, you know the 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 kind of manager style is sort of his way of the highway. I mean, he says in meetings, "My name is on the building," and so if you don't agree with me, uh, get out. And and what uh, you know, one reason we paid attention to this is he has enormous reach in his management style. It's not just the financial planning; he does these management seminars and programs about leadership. So many other companies and churches use his system of management. So that's one reason we looked at it. You know, he's, he says it's the best place to work in America. You should do things his ways. And so we asked, you know, is this, does this add up? Yeah. That sounds pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, and well, this is, this is kind of my point is that, you know, I hate taking sides on these types of things and I won't, but I will say this, that if you go into a place and you kind of know the rules and then you break the rules and then you're upset about the rules, that's where I have a problem. I mean, this, I mean, I don't know Dave Ramsey at all. I've never spoken with him, never interviewed him. You know, some of the things that you're describing as management style sound a little, you know, tyrannical, but you know, I know I've worked for a person or people uh, <laughs> that have uh, had similar characteristics and it can yeah, be but miserable. I think it's COVID. I think, I think what yeah. Bob is saying is that this whole issue of COVID kind of, you know, makes yeah, people reevaluate it's a, it's yeah. a unique situation. And then the second problem, I think Bob too, was the, um, what was Chris Hogan? Was that the yeah, guy? Chris Hogan's situation really, I think people um I mean, he was a senior guy and yeah. he seemed to be getting treated differently yeah yes. yeah i think they've been making a lot of promises to people we have a safe godly environment so there's two questions actually one question is whether what he is doing is legal and so there's i think that the caitlin o'connor case could go quite that right they haven't they haven't used a religious freedom defense yet but it could be like the hobby lobby case where this is a question, you know, kind of principles is how far, how much control can a religious employer, a second secular company have over employees? Which I, that's a really, you know, important question. That's interesting. That's that's really really interesting. interesting, Right. So there's a really, I mean, he is asking what they're doing is asking sets of a really interesting question, whether he's, what he's doing is legal and can he have this kind of control? I think the second part is really, did he, you know, they make these promises we're, you know, trust us. We want a godly environment. We're going to enforce these rules. These rules are for everyone. And then the question became, you know, with Chris Hogan, wait, this person broke all these rules. They're not gone. How do we- He allegedly we, had an affair. Yeah, yeah. No, he, yeah. Remained his, employed. Yeah, in, in, his, in his divorce filings, he's admitted having affairs, including an affair with an employee. And okay. So, so if we could just turn this to financial advisors just for a second. And these other sponsors, you know, so financial advisors, as I've reported, they pay hundreds of dollars a month to be on the platform. So when Bruce Kelly or Jeff Benjamin types his name into the website, they get the lead right away. And in the past, I've had compliance people describe to me that these leads are like red hot, solid gold. So I spoke with three advisors this recently in the past few weeks. We're nearing the end of June now who've been part of this Smart Investor Pro Dave Ramsey lead program for a while and three advisors who have solid books of business, not the not billion dollar plus people or anything like that, but very good books of business. One of them said they were no longer going to associate with Dave Ramsey because of the 
questions that Bob has described and Bob's article described. And two of them said this was not a problem for their clients at all. No one had mentioned it to them. And it, even though it had been prominent, it's been prominent in the, in the Dave Ramsey world for a while. Also, I just want to mention that recently over the past few weeks, we have reached out a couple of times in our reporting about the Dave Ramsey network and the timeshare exit program and asked Dave Ramsey through his PR people to be on our podcast or to comment for a story. We've never heard back from them, even though I have called them two or three times about that. So any opportunity they want to have to come on here and chat about this, we definitely welcome them. Jeff, do you have any other, uh, do you have any comments on that? Or, I mean, it's generating leads, as you know, for financial advisors, man, is, is <laughs> yeah. that's some of the most important stuff in the world for these guys, right? Yeah. I mean, I can understand why the, why, why it works. Obviously getting inside the, uh, the operation itself is a, is a, presents a different kind of a picture. Yeah, Bob, I, I would just, you, I'm assuming you don't cover financial services a lot or as a rule, obviously based on your beat and your, the name of your publication, but do you cover other financial services firms that are kind of straddling the line into religion, like Thrivent Financial, for example? We, we haven't covered Thrivent as much. We have covered other folks who do this or some other folks who do similar things. In fact, I just did a piece on uh, why God you know, has, basically the headline is sort of, you know, these financial, faith and financial groups think that God has something to say about your money, about why sort of the Ramsey thing works. We, we haven't covered Thrivent or some of these other folks as much. One of, one of the things I think about that's really interesting about Ramsey is he's tried also, he's done the faith-based kind of market, but he has also kind of done a wider you know, market to schools and education. So my daughter actually goes to University of North Texas, which was bought one of his products, Smart Dollar, for their employees. And uh, people at the school were concerned about the person they were doing business with. So I think it is going to cause, it has caused concerns for them about folks who may not be in the religious world, but may like his uh, advice and then say, wait, do I want to do business with him? Mm Mm-hmm. I also know that a few years ago, this whole SmartVestor Pro program had to be changed around a bit because the regulators were looking at it as, you know, a Dave Ramsey endorsement of somebody, right? And that's really straddling a line when it comes to securities regulations and advertising and, and the like. Financial advisors can't be, if you're a registered broker, you can't go around town like a like an insurance salesman or a lawyer saying, hey, work with me. I'm a great broker. You know, you have to let Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley promote itself, basically, on your behalf. So there's 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 kind of rules and regulations which made him change around this Smart Vester Pro program. It must have been five or six years ago. Now and that's when it really kind of popped up on our radar. Yeah, no, I think I think his whole, I mean, the success of his operation has provided them some challenges because they've run into this before. With, with but this is what happens with fast growth, right? I mean, yeah. with, t- I mean, I, I Bob I, and Jeff, I mean, whenever you have one of these hugely fast growing companies and this kind of a faith based enterprise too. You, you grow so fast, it's hard to control everything that you're doing. 
you know? And they do, you know, people really swear by them. And I I have talked to many people who said, you know, Ramsey's methods have helped his life, helped their lives. Oh, no doubt. So we've also reached out to them. The first time we got a pretty sarcastic response. Since then, they've been they've been professional, sent us a couple of answers. They have not ever granted us an interview with anyone there. They did invite me once to come to one of their worship services. So I did come and see basically a church service at the at this headquarters in the middle of COVID, which was very interesting. But yeah, <laughs> no, they just, they, I think he has an idea that he has a, a platform on the radio. So why will he talk to reporters? Right. Okay, so it seems like he can be a little prickly about those kinds of things. Yeah, he's a little bit prickly. And, you know, he's enormously, as I said, been enormously helpful to a lot of folks. And he makes some really significant claims about how great his management style is. And I think there are, as a reporter, we'd really like to talk to him about that, about how that's all working. Yeah, and again, our point of interest is how financial advisors are tuned into that. You know, are they tuned into the, the, the management style or are they tuned into the hot leads? Yeah. But it affects, I I can tell you, it affects, I have a friend who does, helps churches buy and build new buildings. And uh, he often (laughs) runs into people who say, well, Dave Ramsey says we shouldn't do this. So he's got enormous, his influence in personal and business and education worlds, he's everywhere. And I, I can't underestimate how influential he is. Yeah. No, it's, it, to me, that's fascinating. It's it's fascinating, as you say, the kind of impact on on thinking that he yeah. that he about finances that he has here. All right, Bob, thanks so much for coming on to the the podcast. Glad to be here. Okay, folks, welcome back. We're talking now with Sonia Dreisler, a speaker, consultant, blogger, podcaster motivational speaker, you name it. We are going to talk to her today about things uh, related to equality and diversity and some ESG in the financial services industry. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Hey, Sonia. Thanks for being here. Yeah, uh, we want to, there's a lot of things we want to go over with you today, but I want to kind of jump right into this thing that we were exchanging kind of comments with on Twitter a week or so ago. Robert Sophia of Snappy Kraken put it out there. What kind of diversity should you have on your among your keynotes and uh, panelists at a conference? And I think you said it had to be, it should be representative of the the country, not just the industry, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. And, and there was a little bit more on that, but uh, I kind of want to start with that. I mean, yeah, let's start this, there. This has been a topic that has is you know the the whole equality and diversity it's not an it's not a new topic or a new issue but it seemed to blow up maybe starting with the the Ken Fisher incident a few years ago and there's been a number of things related to social justice and stuff like that over the past year or so building to where we are now where it is front and center in financial services and and in a lot of industries but um Let's let's start with this. That's you know we run conferences here at Investment News, and I know that as somebody who's involved very intimately with one of our conferences, we strive for as much diversity in our in our presenters as possible. But your take, which I think is interesting, is that it you you want your representation not to be just what the industry where the industry is, but where the where the country is, because that's what we're striving for. Correct. 
Yeah. And that's what I see as our gold standard that we should be measuring against. U.S. demographics are the obvious metric here. We can't be measuring against ourselves, right? Because if we keep measuring financial industry against itself, we're going to look exactly the same in five years. And honestly, we do. I was just listening to your to the episode with Susan Antilla, where you interviewed her mm-hmm. a few months ago. You were talking about how there's been almost no progress, right? In, tw- in the 25 in 20 years. Like, yeah. Right? And so if we're going to keep measuring against ourselves, we're going to keep getting the same results. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. So I'm not saying that every conference needs to immediately go to this gold standard, but that's what we should be shooting for. And that would be, Sonia, half women speakers, uh, yes, half male me, speakers, yes. the according percentage of minority speakers in the and and the like is what you're talking. Yeah, when I say U.S. demographics, I mean look, probably po- most people don't have census data memorized like I do, so let me just lay it out. <laughs> <laughs> please, please let us hear it. You know. Yeah. So in the last U.S. census, white men made up thirty percent of the United States, and so it's pretty. I mean, that's a pretty easy number for us to take and just compare to the last conference that you were at, or even your your company. A financial services company you're interviewing at. But 70, 80, 90% of the speakers at these meetings are white men, right? Exactly. Exactly. And if we're going to make progress as an industry, we need to be really intentional about who we listen to. Because shifting who we listen to as an industry is the first step to reallocating power, widening who we think of as an authority, and who gets to set the direction for a company or an industry. And when it comes to who we listen to, conferences are one of the big gatekeepers of industry authority. So I'm asking conferences to step up and move from being reflective of our industry to being reflective of where our industry needs to go. Does there become a point or, or are you concerned at all that you get to a point where the the kind of the tail wags the dog in that? I mean, as somebody who puts together conferences, and I know you're very involved in this stuff, too, Sonia, you know, you're trying to find like, for example, our, our last conference, we did the RAA summit. We had a uh, we were we had a panel on custodians and fidelity. We were lucky enough to get David Cantor, who happens to be a white man. Mm hmm. But David Cantor is like the Anthony Fauci of custodial services, you know, <laughs> and I don't hear anybody saying Anthony Fauci shouldn't be the, the spokesperson on, you know, infectious diseases because he's a white man. I mean, so, I mean, I got to tell you, we're we're trying and, and I think a lot of people are trying and it's difficult. And I and I'm not complaining that it's difficult because I think it's a good and worthy fight or effort. but. At what point do you say, well, David Cantor's a good guy, and I hate to use him as an example because he really is a good guy. But- and I'm not saying we need to not have any white men at, at, you know, on stage. That's not at all what I'm saying. David Cantor should speak on the thing that he has mm-hmm. you know, expertise in, absolutely. Right. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is you know, what direction do you or can you offer and and it's a delicate thing too, because you know we're calling companies, let's say Fidelity, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, BlackRock, 
and we're saying, you know, we're looking for a spokesperson on this particular topic for a panel or or a keynote or something like that, but we don't want a white man. But, but isn't <laughs> the problem though that there's not enough hiring? Well, let's let's stay on this for a minute though. That's no, 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 oh, no, come on. these two things. You you're both you are both kind of hitting the the same thing, both the problem and where we need a solution. Right. Yeah. Right? And there's a two, there's a couple. I think I can answer both things at the same time. And what I'm hearing you say is something that I hear from a lot of people. Oh, it's a pipeline problem. And I would say it's really not. It's not a pipeline problem. It's a network problem. Explain that. I don't know what that means, Sonia. Yeah. I want to I want to make that distinction because when we say it's a pipeline problem, it takes away our individual responsibility and accountability. But when we accept that it's a network problem, we all can get to work at solving it. Right. And it's not just a problem for the speakers. More representative conferences attract more representative audiences. And I know conference organizers want to bring in a wider variety of attendees and just more attendees. Right. I mean, you probably see it in the media, too. If the only stories you tell are white men's stories, you end up sort of segmenting yourself unintentionally into having disproportionately more white men readers. Right. Right. But getting back to, you know, what's the solution, right? So first, like I said, it's a network problem. And first, we need to do the work ourselves. I've written a lot about this. Uh, I have lots of articles on my website about intentional networking. It's something I talk about a lot. And secondly, I'm actually working on a solution to this exact issue. I can't talk much about it now. Oh, um, come on. I know. You'll have to have me back in <laughs> Please, a couple you, months. You know, <laughs> you know, speaking of Susan Antella, Susan Antella dropped the same thing on us. She's like, I'm working on something pretty big. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> then we said, tell us, give us a preview. She said, no, I can't. And she just released it's this great the article. The article about race, about yeah. being black on Wall Street. So that is... Just give a short plug to Susan Antilla. It was in The Nation, right? Mm-hmm. It is an incredible article. So people it, just type in Susan Antilla and The Nation into Google, and you can find this tremendous bit. Of, there's no one who does stuff like her really out there right now. So She she is incredible. I give her so much credit for moving the conversation forward in a way that really – very few people have been able to. I leaned yeah. on her work heavily when I wrote my Do Better series. She's phenomenal. And she knows that I really admire her work. You can also see links to that to that article all over my Twitter feed. I've been sharing it all week because I just want everybody to read it. It's so good. Sonia, what, what can you tell us about, I mean, if people are looking for ways to do better. What are some of the things, I mean, it's it's getting down to is it just that you got to ask specifically for the type of person you want based on skin color and gender or do you need to i mean that's is that is that even a good place to start or is it a bad place to start i mean that's like 12 questions in one part of what we've been doing unintentionally for years is asking people to speak based on skin color and gender, but it's white men because those are the people who are in our network. And those are the people who we default to listen to. Right. So like I said, I'm working on a new solution that will help financial media and conference organizers to expand their networks and lift up the voices of women and people of color experts and professionals. Stay tuned there. But in the meantime, it's, it is a 
long-term build your network kind of thing where everybody needs to be more intentional about who they are listening to and whose voices they're raising up. It takes it takes time and it takes being willing to shift your perspective. And how do you do that, Sonia? What are like a couple of do things. Do I go on LinkedIn and try to find people or do I try to connect more with people on Twitter or do I? Actually, social media is such a great tool for this because you can, particularly on Twitter, LinkedIn's not as helpful in this particular regard, but on Twitter, you're able to watch conversations and learn from them without necessarily responding, right? So you can learn a lot from listening to people who aren't like you. And you can also do a little bit of self-reflection. If you go and look at your your Twitter profile, look at who you're following. Have a look and take a look at the gender and racial demographics of not just who you're following, but who are the last five people that whose work you shared, either by retweeting or sharing an article. And it's often very reflective of, of your network. I only retweet myself. <laughs> so what does that say about me? Oh, You're a racist. I'm just awful. You're wrong, Bruce. Come on. That's not I'm true. Bruce is, Bruce, Bruce is very, uh, very generous with his retweets and likes and stuff. He's, he's being too hard on himself. Hey, uh, Sonia, tell us, let's, now let's get into the little bit of the Sonia. Tell us a little bit about this Do Better series. I, I know there's an interesting backstory there, but where, where's maybe sum it up for us and then tell us where you're going with this. And I, I one way or another, we're going to squeeze out this news out of you. We'll, we'll get it because we'll, we'll pester you until you submit. <laughs> I, I'm well media trained. You're not going to get that one from me, but I'm happy okay. to talk about the Do Better series. And, you know, it's interesting that you should ask about the Do Better series because it's, it was two years ago that I wrote it. And it's seen just in the last month, this totally renewed interest in it. So I'm not sure, I'm not exactly sure where it's coming from, but I've seen it, you know, quoted in places and I've seen more hits on my website. So I actually just last night finished refreshing that part of my website that has frequently asked questions and the impact that the stories have had. But this, What spurred it? What spurred it? This is a really good story. A lot of people think it was the Ken Fisher incident because I was there. I was one of the people that spoke out, but it wasn't. It happened around the same time, but it was... That was what, 2018 or 2019 when that all happened? 19. So the fall, in, right? The fall of mm-hmm, 19. Mm-hmm. But, in, but in March of that same year, so you know, months before, I wanted to write an article about harassment and discrimination discrimination in financial services and why women don't share their stories of harassment and discrimination and assault publicly, right? Because when women get to women in finance get together, it's one of the first things we often talk about. We share notes, we talk about who is safe or not safe to be around, what companies are, are good to women, which companies are not. There's this whisper network but it's something that we don't share publicly. And so I wanted to write an article about that. And I was going to share some of my own stories, but I didn't want to make it about me. So I put a call out on social media when I had a much smaller following and said, does anybody want to share their 
story with me? Do any women want to share their stories with me so I can share them anonymously on their behalf in this article? I was not anticipating the response I got. I got more than 40 stories in 24 hours. That's incredible. It was. And so I sat with them all. Honestly, some of them are so painful to read. It took me a long time to get through them all and then to figure out what I was going to do because clearly it was more than just an article, right? So I put them together. And these are people's, these are women's written responses to to your... Mostly written, but some some women called me because they're so afraid of getting putting anything in writing right i mean the the terror that has been placed on these women it's horrible the threats they feel it it's just incredibly intense and so some of them called me but mostly they were written to me so i i grouped them all by themes as much as i could and then decided to put out a series about including every single one of the 40 plus stories and my own and then talk about the different themes and some of the solutions to the themes as well. And so all of that was happening in the background between March and say, I don't know, maybe September. I shopped it around to some news outlets. Nobody wanted it for various complicated reasons. And most partly because the stories were anonymous, partly because I think the financial media not not ready to talk about sexual assault. So I was just sitting there with this pile of stories that I had, you know, articles that I had written, didn't really know what to do with. I was scared to publish them myself. So I just sat on them starting around October. I was like, I need to publish these. And I was just too scared to do it. And then the Ken Fisher thing happened. And now, could you just refresh people's memories when we say Ken Fisher thing? What yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what happened at, there? Yep, yep. At the and talk um, about conferences too. I mean, it was at a conference, mm-hmm, right? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, at the Tiburon CEO conference, which is a big time conference. It's one of yeah, the, it's a big time conference. Lots of really brilliant folks in the room there. Yeah, Ken Fisher was on stage, and he just made some wildly inappropriate sexist remarks. And there's a code of silence at the conference to protect business matters, not to protect people from saying terrible things from the stage. Yeah, Tiburon is very exclusive, right? It, it's yes. it's for CEOs and yes. presidents of big firms. And yes. it kind of pr- prides itself on being very expensive, very exclusive. Chipperom has really built that up over the years into a destination. And you're not supposed to talk about what people say at Tiburon. Yes, absolutely. And I understand why the reason is because, you know, business happens there and there's sharing of business information and there's respectful mutual agreement that you don't share that pub that information publicly. But I don't see that as you know, also protecting somebody who's saying things from the stage that are harassment of the people who are in the audience. So a few people spoke out about it, including me. And after I did, I just had so many media inquiries. Remember how I said I was well media trained? That's how I learned. I didn't, I was <laughs> drowning in inquiries. People called my cell phone, my. Now, at the time, were you a financial advisor when all this was going on or no? No, I was doing the same. I was consulting in the ESG space. Okay. Yeah, so I had all these messages on every single platform and I I didn't really want to talk about it. I wanted to talk about 
I mean, it's fine. Like I'll, I had a statement about it, but I didn't really want to get into the details because it's not about Ken Fisher. It's about the broader industry and the problems that financial services faces and the, the way that women are routinely discriminated against. So that's when I decided to finally hit publish on the series. I had all this incoming media attention and I thought, oh, okay, I can take this and turn it to the bigger conversation that I want to have. So that's when I published the first one. And to be honest, I was so nervous when I hit pub. I didn't even hit publish on it. I asked my newsletter person to do it for me, to send it out. And I almost threw up. And I was expecting to possibly never work in this industry again, because these are just not things that we talk about. Right. And it was incredibly well received. It was amazing. And the second, that was the introduction. And then the second article was about conferences, actually. And that piece is what went viral. Installment two about conferences went viral. And no, I remember when they came out, it, it got a tremendous reaction from people. Yeah, yeah. The stories in there are just awful and heartbreaking. And some of them are mine. And yeah, and so I just kept going and it really sparked quite the conversation. And apparently it's doing so again right now. It's, it's nice to see that there's still continued conversation in this space. We, we've talked about, you know, the Susan Antilla seeing this not a lot of change over 30 years. Have you seen any progress in this area? And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, crude comments and stuff like that. We're going back to Ken Fisher reference there, but I'm talking about progress in terms of more women and, and people of color populating the financial planning wealth management space? Mm, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe small, um, maybe like small at the entry level, it does appear that there's more women and people of color entering into finance, but the, the stats as you go up the hierarchy, up the corporate ladder, it's abysmal, really. And it's especially bad for women, women of color, especially Black and Latino women. And then Indigenous women are basically unrepresented, statistically speaking. And, uh, and why do you think that is? <laughs> There's so many reasons, right? It feel, It is a hostile, it's often a hostile place to work. And I mean, there's, we could talk all day and lots of people have different theories about why this is, you know, women are included in finances from a young age, all these things. But one of the things we don't talk about is that women leave, women leave our industry because of harassment, discrimination, and assault. Sometimes they leave and go to another job uh, at another finance firm. Sometimes they leave and start their own firm. But when you have to leave a job, at a time that is not of your choosing, that's not good timing, right? That's not how to build a career. And so when you're forced out, your career gets sidelined. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's very true. Just based on my own reporting, reporting mm -hmm. about industry arbitration and lawsuits. And, you know, it always just seems to me quite often, you know, there's a woman who's getting the shown the door and then just says, yeah, I can't take it anymore, you know? Yeah. 
yep. and, and, stay, and, and stays piece out, it, right? you know. Arbitration keeps things secret. Arbitration and NDAs keep these things secret. Often if a woman actually does bring something up through legal or arbitration channels, she's dismissed, moved on. She may be paid a settlement and asked to leave, forced to leave. And the person who did the harassing is still there and is protected because all of this is kept secret with NDA and arbitration proceedings. Right. And often, often the harassers are serial harassers. So it can affect many, many women when a serial harasser remains in place. Why do you think there aren't more female RIAs, independent financial advisors? Because you don't have to go. I was asking Susan about that, and and no, um, I wasn't. We were asking uh, Mindy Diamond about that. Not yeah, Susan. Oh yeah, I think a lot of uh, there's a couple of reasons that I would add that some of the many RIAs they come, many independent RIA owners come from having that training first at the wirehouse at where you know, right. Um, or wherever they started at a at a large RIA, and then go independent. And those first five to ten years of training, many women don't stay. They don't get recruited in, and then the women that often the women who do go in are forced out for the reasons that we already talked about. And sometimes they're forced out into into independent RIAs, and they do their own thing, but. Often they'll just opt out of an industry that is hostile to them. Is it? And we're missing out on so much talent. I know, but are you are you suggesting <laughs> that it's the, it, right? are you suggesting that it's the it's the big wirehouses and stuff that are the bottleneck to preventing more or prohibiting more women from becoming independent RAs? Because I do agree, a lot of RAs get their start in the you know in the broker dealer and brokerage channels, but. It doesn't have to be the root, especially now with so many colleges offering financial planning services. Yeah, it's still a pretty hard jump to go from college to owning an RIA, though, because. No, you don't have to own one. I'm just saying a lot of RIA, a lot of man, you know, this a lot of uh, RIAs out there are just looking. Yeah, they are recruiting like crazy. I mean, I just did a story yesterday from our Women Advisor Summit and. Three panelists are saying they cannot find women because women are not applying and they're mm. independent. So I'm I'm just kind of, you know, it's always kind of boggled my mind. I can totally understand the, you know, the the things that are the inertia in some of these giant firms. But when it comes to it's like it, when an independent firm, I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't want to downgrade the industry at all, but it's not that difficult to set up an RIA. <laughs> and there are a lot of firms looking to hire. So I'm kind of wondering, that seems to be if women wanted to be in this space, that would be, you know, the the widest path. Agree. I agree that that is probably a better and more open path than the traditional warehouse space. Also, though, I mean, you know how it is in this industry. So many jobs are filled by people you know, right? And so if the people who are hiring I'm glad to hear that people are out there trying to be more intentional about who they interview. That sounds like that's what you were hearing at the the summit. But as you know, so much of this business, so much of the hiring in this business is, well, you know, I've brought my son in or I mean, that's how I got my start. My dad's in the business. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I am not, I'm not immune from the, from the same thing, right? This is a network and who, you know, business. And so if people were in positions to hire, you know, hire their golf buddy's son, cause it remind cause he reminds him of them when they were young, that is, you know, a fine thing to do, but it's not a, it's not a broad based interview and search where you're finding a variety of and interviewing a variety of top talent. And that's how a lot of jobs get filled in our industry. Mm-hmm. In, in, in many industries. Yeah, I think it pretty much, we are not it, unique in that way. Yeah, not just financial advice and financial Absolutely service. Absolutely not. <laughs> is, is wealth management, do, do you think wealth management is, is behind the curve in terms of diversity or kind of, you know, on par. With I mean, the- if we're going to measure to the U.S. population, which I always am, then absolutely we're behind the curve. That's uh-huh. the metric for me. If you're comparing to other industries, I act- honestly, I don't know. I think it depends on what industry you compare to. I talk to a lot of people who see these same issues in law and tech, mm-hmm. um, race and gender harassment, discrimination issues that I talk about and underrepresentation issues. They show up in law and tech, not so much in, in like, for example, my husband is a biology professor. He's the only, he's the only man in his department. Uh, So it's not everywhere, but it's, I don't know. I don't really compare us to other industries, I guess is what I'm saying. I look at us compared to the country and the people that the communities we live in, the country we're living in, the communities we serve and we're just, we're missing so much talent. And so many business opportunities, in addition to being discriminatory. Well, when you're out there talking to your clients as a, as a consultant, what do they tell you? Do they tell you that they are trying to hire more diverse talent? Do they tell you they're having a hard time doing it? Do they tell you, I mean, I would imagine if somebody's paying you for, for advice, they're looking, right? What, what are they experiencing? Actually, most of my consulting clients are in the ESG space and are really sort of thoughtful about this specifically, this issue specifically already. And for example, you can hear Rachel Robichaudi at Adesina. She's one of my clients and you can hear her talk about her hiring and how, and Maya, the the co-founder, they're really intentional about looking for, they cast a really wide net when they are hiring and they are intentional about looking outside of our industry for parallel skills and not necessarily the exact five years experience working in an asset manager or whatever it is, but finding the skills that they need because the pool can be, can be restricted. Right. There's, there's a lot of talk. And I think I probably even heard you reference it to, to allies being you know, men, I guess mm-hmm. white people in general. And I hate those kind of generalizations because cannot assume that all men or white people are one way or another, but absolutely. <laughs> what can people that are not women or people of color in this industry, what can they do to help kind of better this cause? Because we obviously everyone benefits by a more diverse yeah. environment. Absolutely. So, I mean, the first step is listening always. (laughs) 
but I keep coming back to it, sort of the theme of our conversation today, right? Listening and li- be intentional about who you listen to and listen with the intent to understand, not necessarily to respond. I'm sure that that's something that you all are well-trained at as journalists, but it's not something that many people do in conversation. They're so interested in the next thing that they're going to say that they may miss what this person is saying. I'd also say the second step is once you're listening, stop comparing what this person is telling you. Say Say you're a man, you're listening to a woman talking about harassment at work. Stop comparing what she's telling you to your lived experience because they are different. (laughs) And just because something hasn't happened to you doesn't mean it hasn't happened to her. And so your lived experience does not make hers untrue. Those are some good first steps. I have tons of articles about this on my site about allyship. And what's the website? Uh, solutionswithsonia.com and under the writing tab in the navigation there's links to everything by theme all the all the themes I write about race gender ESG all of it okay so are we going to get to that uh, that that number uh, or that percentage of, of kind of the financial services space uh, reflecting the the demographic makeup of the the country you think at some point in our lifetimes <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am. Oh, come on, Jeff. Come on. Man. I am 41 and I am not hopeful for it to happen in my lifetime, but I will do everything I can to push it as far as possible in my lifetime so that the women and people of color and all the people who have been historically excluded from our industry feel welcome, included, and able to use their skills. The needle hasn't moved in 20 years. I think the needle has moved. Come on. I, we, I, I, there I, I, are yeah, more yeah, women yeah. now in this industry than there ever have uh, been. I don't know about that, my friend. Sonia, back me up. There's no just based on my experience and every all the studies I've read and the 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 information that the old SIA SIFMA used to put out mm-hmm. twenty years ago, twenty-one years ago, the number the percentage of women who were financial advisors or stockbrokers in the country always ranged in the fifteen to twenty percent range. Some firms do better than that. Some firms do worse. I haven't seen, I think that's the number that is commonly used these, these days. And Sonia, I think it's even, I think it's even worse let, for minorities in African-Americans. Sonia, what is the, <laughs> what is the truth here? No, you're, you're right that it really hasn't moved yet and moved much yet. And you are also right in that it is worse for people of color and especially women of color. And to be quite frank, if we're going to do something about it, we need all of the people who are already in the room who are mostly white men to stand up and decide they're actually going to do something about it and work on it, include it in everything they do every day. I think many would like to, but they really don't know how to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people and voices like you, Sonia, are important, you know? Yeah, um, it's really you're just giving practical ways of thinking and doing and 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 using social media and the like. You know, just practical things because people, I think, would sit back and think, "Well, what what can I do about this kind of problem?" It's been 
listen to Kelly. He's been saying it hasn't changed in 20 years, you know, so what the <laughs> hell should I do, right? That's why, I mean, I'm focused, I'm really pretty focused in on conferences and media because the same thing that I said about conferences goes for financial services, media too, right? It's about who we listen to and who we, who we agree are experts. And I think that both media and conferences are, like I said, gatekeepers of industry authority and also able to pursue change because of that. And because look, when you are interviewing sources or if a conference organizer is choosing who's going to speak on a panel, it's not the same as hiring you conference organizers get to put out a new agenda every single year. They have fresh slate and you have it with every single story you write, you have a fresh slate of what sources to talk to. Right. And so it, can we can move the needle a lot faster in those two areas, which is why I'm really zeroed in there and hoping that media and conferences can lead the way because they're very well positioned to do so. I love I love the focus. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I just wish we didn't have to end on such a downer that there's been no progress in 30 years. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's a, look. I don't think it's a downer. I've been thinking. Recently, a lot, you know, that, that phrase, uh, Marion Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. Right. Uh And that's why we should, that's why, that's why, you know, women are, you know, women are in power because they haven't been before. And so women don't know they can be. And I just, I have been thinking about that a lot lately. And I don't buy that as much. It is important to have role models. Don't get me wrong. But like, I left my first job, not, not in asset management because I knew I had the skills and potential to go to do really well, to be a leader. And I just found myself getting dismissed over and over by men and that there were no women. The the company did not see women as leaders. And so for me, while it's important for me and I, you know, for women and people of color, professionals who are young in their career to have role models who look like them. It isn't the only reason to lift up those voices. I think just as key, the reason we should be featuring those voices is for men. Representation at U.S. census levels on the stage and in media is for white men who benefit just as much from seeing women and people of color as leaders and people they should listen to because we've been socialized not to recognize women and people of color as leaders. And we can collectively unlearn that by who we listen to. And so we have this huge opportunity. I'm not, I wouldn't do this work if I was pessimistic about it. I do get, you know, sad and angry sometimes, but I'm really optimistic that we can make a big change here and that media and conferences will lead the way. Well, I'm encouraged, Jeff and Sonia, because five years ago, 10 years ago, we wouldn't even been having this conversation. Right. Even two years ago, when I published the Do Better series, I thought maybe I was ending my career in this field. Thought I'd maybe go work at my brother's restaurant. Yeah, but I think we're ready to have our industry is finally ready to have tough conversations and to to move forward. 
And I appreciate you having me on the podcast to yeah, have well, a we, conversation. We appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sonia. Yeah, take care. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, that means it's time for another podcast. Of course, we want to thank our special guests, Bob Smetana and Sonia Dreisler. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, as well as the places where you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff on Twitter, at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we will be talking to you next week.